Tonight here at Ground Zero Ministries, we're going to continue through the books of the Bible, and tonight's um, lesson is on the book of Revelation, which was truly uh, named the Revelation of Jesus. And it was written by John as he called, recalls this revelation, you know, this vision, you know, that he had had, you know, or in the Greek it would be translated into apocalypse. You know, and this refers to a type of literature that was familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse was a recounted of the prophet's symbolic dreams or visions that had been revealed by God's heavenly perspective on history and in current events, so that the present could be viewed in light of the histories that and history's final outcomes. And John says that this apocalypse is the prophecy in which the word of God, you know, that John says that it was spoken through the prophet of God, that people usually to warn or to comfort, you know, that in this time of crisis, by calling this book a book of prophecy, John is saying that it stands in the traditional of the biblical prophets of bringing their message to a climax. This apocalyptic prophecy was sent to a real people that John knew that this was a circular letter that would have been sent around the seven churches, you know, in ancient Roman providence of Asia Minor. And now seven is a meaningful number for John. It is a symbol, a symbol of of complete or completion or completeness based on the seven days of the Sabbath cycle of the Old Testament. John has woven sevens into everything, you know, as he, you know, as a, a part of this book. John has given us a clear, you know, guidance about how to be what was under and stand for this book. Jewish apocalypse, you know, commented through the symbolic imagery and numbers. This is not some secret, you know, code that we can, you know, find secret meanings in of the end times and the end worlds as so many people try to do. You know, I will have to say that this is one of my most frustrating books, you know, as a Christian, you know, and so many people try to find things and, and, you know, they found a new revelation and, you know, Jesus is coming back in May and, and it's like, you know, people preach on end times and, you know, I really have a hard time with any of those types of preachers. You know, because I recount Jesus' words when they asked him when he would return, and he says, I don't even know, only the Father in heaven knows. You know, so if Jesus did not know when he was going to return, there's not one human that says they've had a new revelation that Jesus is going to return on X amount of days, you know, that to me is going to happen. You know, and since Jesus was ascended, they've been telling people that Jesus is returning each and every century, you know, there's been somebody that says that Jesus is coming, you know, and he has yet to come, you know, and, you know, someday he will return and we'll look back at it and say, oh, yeah, now we can see it. Just as, you know, when Jesus showed up the first time that you could look into scriptures and you could see it more clearly. But until you've had that new revelation, certain scriptures don't pop out the way they do. You know, now when we read the Old Testament, we're like, oh, yeah, that's talking about Jesus. You know, but when they were reading it, they couldn't see it as clearly. You know, so 
when we're reading through it, you know, someday, you know, somebody's going to be on the other side of Jesus' return and they're going to be like, look at all these scriptures that pointed to it. You know, right now, you know, we can hypothetically make, you know, assumptions and, and different things, but, you know, nobody has gotten it right yet. You know, so someday he's going to return. Some people think it's going to be soon. I don't think that I'll ever see it in my lifetime. That's my opinion. You may have a different opinion. And guess what? It's okay. You know, that we can have different opinions about this book. You know, but there's certain things that, you know, when we get into the text that, you know, when you study it out, you know, you start to see how, you know, it's not this big mystical book. A lot of it is history, and some of it's already taken place, and some of it may be happening now, and some of it may yet to come. And it, it's too hard to say because of the way it was written in the poetic form, and then it's John's visions and what he's hearing, and, you know, and certain things have come to pass, and it it's not something that we try to read between the lines and try to find out the hidden meaning of. I think that so often it's just, it's clear, you know, as you read through it and you study out church history and you study out the early church and you study out what's going on in the Romans, you know, in the, in the capital city and who's, you know, running the, running the show at that time, you start to see how some of the stuff has already taken place. And it's really just talking about the history or the prophetic message of what's to come, you know, real soon. So, John is using, you know, different symbols to draw from, you know, the Old Testament. And he expects that his readers to go discover what these symbols may mean by looking into the text and what he's alluding to. Also, the fact is that this letter means that John is actually addressing a situation in the first century churches. So this book's meaning must be anchored in context of John's time, place, and audience which is why John addresses this Jesus' message to the churches. John was exiled in the island of Patmos, where he saw the vision you know, of the risen Jesus exalted as the king of the world, and he was standing among the seven burning lights. John told us that this symbol is the symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor. That you know, been adopted from the book of Zechariah. Jesus starts addressing specific problems that faced in each church, and some were, you know, apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around and having sex in pagan temples. So many among the churches reminded, you know, were being reminded to be faithful to Jesus and that they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution and Jesus warns that these things are going to to get even worse a tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise and faithfulness by John's day the murdering of Christians by the Roman emperor Nero had passed you know and Nero was you know killing Christians for sport you know he was you know, the gladiators, and he was throwing them in there, and the lions were eating them, and they were doing all sorts of crazy stuff to Christians. You know, and some say that when it talks about 666, if you look it up in the Greek, it's actually 616, and that's the Roman numerals for his name, so it's actually talking about the Antichrist spirit, it's on Nero, and blah, blah, blah. You know, and there's so many different ways that you can, you know, look at some of this stuff, you know, and a lot of it gets, you know, runs into such imagination and people take it to such far levels that, 
you know, we have to pull it back, and sometimes it just actually says what it says. You know, and, you know, we, we look too far into things because we're trying to find meanings that aren't there, or we try to make the devil into being this big, mighty power when he's already been defeated, you know, that he is only given as much power as we give him. You know, and we have to realize that we walk with an authority, we walk with victory that's in Christ, and we have nothing to truly fear. You know, so, you know, this persecution of Christians by the emperor uh, Dotane was underway. You know, so it passed power, and there's still persecution going on. So the temptation to deny Jesus, and either to avoid persecution or to simply join the spirit of the Roman age, you know, which is all sorts of crazy stuff. Like, if you look at the similarities to the Roman Empire and what's going on in America... You know, there's so many parallels to things that are happening then and things that are happening now, you know, that was the result in the, you know, the tearing down of the Roman Empire, you know, from within because of the Senate, you know, and because of the powers that be trying to, to do all this corrupt stuff, you know, and the things that we have going on in America, you know, are, are pretty crazy too, you know, the terrorist attacks and the, you know, the abuse of children and the corruption in the government. You know, there's all these different things that were going on then that are going on now. You know, you know, and we can look the other way and join in to what everybody else is doing and, you know, and follow the crowd. Or we can stand up and follow Jesus and not everybody around us is going to like the fact that we represent, you know, the God of gods, the King of kings, you know, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is calling us to faithfulness. So that we can overcome or literally conquer, you know, that Jesus promises us a reward for every one of these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the books, the final vision about the message of heaven and earth. You know, will Jesus' people endure? Will we endure? You know, how many times do we, we put in that crossroads and we have a choice in that moment where we are you know, I'm going to choose Jesus, you know, and I might be persecuted or I might miss out on fun or I choose my flesh and I choose to go a different direction in what takes place. You know, there's so often that we have to learn to endure, you know, and deny our flesh, deny the temptations of this world, deny the influences of the people around us so that we can see what God has for us. You know, and it's so important that we learn to press through, you know, a lot of you, you know, I keep, I keep telling you, just keep grinding, you know, put your head down and keep going forward, you know, and too often we're looking around at what's going on around us and we're living by sight and not by faith, you know, and when you put your head down and you keep on grinding and you keep trusting and you say, I trust you, Jesus, I trust you, Jesus, when you do pop your head up, you realize that some of the things that you've been afraid of have already gone and passed, you know, you've gotten through something, you know, rather than running from it or trying to manipulate your way around it, you know, you're learning to endure, you're learning to, to persevere, you know, our character is being strengthened in times when things don't go the way we had hoped, you know, and it's so important that we continue to conquer, you know, and continue to, to push through, you know, and, <clears throat> you know, God's heavenly throne room, you know, as it's described from the imagery that many of the Old Testament prophets, you know, they were talking about what's going on in, in the kingdom, that surrounding God are these creatures and these elders that are representation of all creation, that the human, 
you know, nations and that they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. And in God's hand that there is a scroll and it's closed and that there's seven wax seals and it symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and that, you know, it's sealed, you know, and it seals. You know, the, these seals on the scroll were in Daniel's vision and that these are about how God's kingdom is to come fully on earth as it is in heaven. However, no one is able to open it for the scroll until John hears of someone who can. And it's the lion from the tribe of Judah. You know, in the root of David, he can open it. You know, and this is a classic Old Testament description of the Messianic king who is to bring God's kingdom through a, a military conquest. You know, so now this is what John hears, but then what he turns and he sees is not this aggressive lion king, but the sacrificial bloody lamb. And that alive is still alive, standing there and ready to open the scroll. This symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb is crucially important for us to the understanding of this book. John's saying the Old Testament promises of God's future victorious kingdom was put into place by the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by denying, by dying for them and the true Passover lamb so that they could become redeemed. You know, aren't we glad that he, you know, laid down his life for us? That it wasn't about our works, that it wasn't about us figuring it out, that he did it for us. And because of the res resurrected Jesus' death on that cross, that the death was defeated. You know, and it was in this enthronement that it was this way of conquering evil. So the vision concludes with a lamb among the ones sitting on the throne. And together they are worshipped as one true creator and redeemer. And the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It is a symbol of divine authority to be given to guide history to it to open this scroll. And this all of history comes to a conclusion. The next section of Revelation is about three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven stars, seven lampstands. There's lots of stuff going on in here. You know, and each cycle depicts God's kingdom and the justice that come on earth as it is in heaven. Some people think the three sets of seven of divine judgment represent a literal linear sequence of events that either happened in the past or could be happening now or has yet to happen. You know, nobody has a 100% idea of what's really going on. Everybody just has their own interpretations. And there's been many of people that study this stuff out. I am not going to be one of them. This is probably one of the only times that I'm ever going to speak on Revelation because it's just so deep. There's so much stuff going on, and there's so many poetic things, and there's so many things that are connected, and it's just like, you know, your head kind of spins when you get into some of this stuff. You know, it is kind of really cool, though. I, don't, I won't lie. Like, when you start really looking into it, like, there's all this imagery and stuff that's going on, you know, but to really make sense of it all, you know, you need way more of an education than I can. I'm just trying to give us a summary of what this book's kind of going on. You know, and even as I'm up here, I'm like, you know, I'm just trying to connect some dots to to make a summary of this book. But there's so much that's going on. But yeah, it's just as simple as it is, you know, written on the paper. You know, so it, it's complicated, but yet simple. You know, 
So anyway, you know that you know there John has woven these sevens into this final seven bowls that come out of the seven trumpets and then the seven seals and the seven trumpets are an image of the seventh seal and each seven contains the new you know next seven about to notice each series of seven and it culminates in the final judgment of what's washing the conclusions and likely that John is using all these sets of seven. to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and his final return. You know, which we're right smack in the dab in the middle of it, and it's today the 7th. But anyway, you know, that all these things are from a different perspective. So the slain lamb, you know, know, begins to open these scrolls, first of the four seals, as John sees the four horsemen. It is an image of the book that we see in Zechariah chapter 1. And it symbolizes a time of conquest, war, famine, and death. You know, and these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse that, you know, are very popular. You know, most of us have heard about these. The fifth seal depicts the murder of Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne. And they cry, or their innocent one rises up before God as smoke rises from the altar of the incense. You know, and they're told to rest because mere Christians are to die. And the sixth seal is God's ultimate response of their cry. He begins the great day of the Lord as described in Isaiah and in Joel, and the people of the earth cry out. John sees the angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all the hardships and all that he hears, the number of those who are seated, the 144,000. It is a military census that the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the number of the army, and what John hears just as, you know, about the conquering lion of the Judah, but yet both cases, what he saw was surprising of the fulfillment of these images is Jesus as the slain lamb. So he's hearing one thing and he's seeing a different thing. So he's hearing military, but he's seeing sacrificial lamb. You know, and so when he sees the necessity of the army of God's kingdom, you know, it's made up of people from all nations fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's a multi-ethnic army of the Lamb who's, you know, you know, can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the Lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer not by killing the enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness, just like the Lamb did. After this, you know, the the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is open, the seventh warning of the trumpet emerge and and fire is taken from the incense altar and it symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, beginning of the day of the Lord, to its completion. You know, with the seven trumpets, you know... John retells the story, this time with an image from Exodus. You know, in the first five trumpet blasts, replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and the sixth trumpet, you know, releases the four horsemen that come from the the first four seals. But then John tells, and despite of all the plagues on the nation, they did not repent. Just as they did not repent as the plagues came upon Pharaoh, you know, in the in the Exodus story. So it seems that judgment alone will not bring 
people to humble repentance before him. You know, how many times have we been in trouble and it did not turn our hearts? How many times did we face, you know, more pain or a, a, a longer sentence or there was going to be more, you know, that was going to be painful for us if we continued in the way that we were going to go? And what did we do? We, we kept on going. You know, so repercussions alone don't bring change of the heart. You know, we, it may bring, you know, behavioral modification. We might try to elude it. We might try to refrain from it. But our heart goes where our heart wants to go. And so often we push through the pain, you know, of, you know, possibly losing our freedom, possibly losing, you know, other things. And we, we don't take into account, you know, so it just continues to show us that the matter is the matter of our heart. You know, consequences alone will not change our heart. You know, and, you know, this is, you know, the tension between wrath and grace. You know, so often people are like, you know, you're going to go to hell, right? You know, we've all heard that. But how often does that not change anyone? It's hearing of the love of Jesus that begins to melt someone's heart. And then they understand what it would be like to be in hell. That you'd miss out on being with Jesus. You know, that so often we, you know, people make the argument that God's sending people to hell. And that's not technically true. We choose it. We choose that path. You know, and people don't want to hear that because, well, why would this loving God, you know, send people to hell? You know, you chose a life without him, and this is the repercussions of a life without him. You know, life with him has these benefits and, you know, a relationship that's loving and kind and you get to spend eternity with him, you know, and that's what begins to change our hearts, isn't it? You know, that coming to the understanding that Jesus loved me really began to screw with me because I did not feel loved. I did not feel lovable, you know, and it began to to really melt my heart. And as I began to try to figure that out, you know, and lo and behold, I ran into Jesus and I realized how much he did love me and I learned how to love him back. Never was the consequence ever enough to change, you know, the heart of this man, you know. So, you know, consequences alone won't bring us to repentance. You know, John sent, you know, says that an angel brings an unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. Just like in Ezekiel, John told us to eat the scroll and proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb's scroll is opened, and we discover how God's kingdom will come on earth. And the scroll's content is spelled out in two symbol, symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure to set them apart as an image of the protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the other outer court in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. And some think that this refers to the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past and will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus 
and the apostles who used the new temple as a symbolic of God's new covenant to his people. So Jesus' followers may suffer persecution, although its external defeat cannot take away their victory in the Lamb's blood. The second vision, you know, God appoints the two witnesses as a prophetic, you know, representative of the nations. John also calls the lampstands, which is a symbol of the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call down idolatrous nations and idolatrous rulers and turn their and turn back to the one true God. But all of a sudden, the horrible beast appears. Remembering Daniel in chapter 7, and the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them, but God brings back to life and vindicates the witnesses before the, he persecutes the end result that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator, God, in the day of the Lord. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like Exodus plagues and the hardness of Pharaoh's hearts. But the Lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them and dying for them. And now the message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, that the church and God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the churches imitating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb not by killing its enemies, but by dying for them. It's God's mercy shown through Jesus to, to lovers and followers that bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message that opens a scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. You know, after the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken, as God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, now we know that the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation. You know, and there's so much going on in this book that I'm splitting it in two because I didn't think that I was going to be able to cover, you know, all of the, of what's going on in here in one night. You know, so, you know, as we're talking about all these different things, we're seeing all this prophetic imagery we're seeing, you know, these different symbols, you know, and each symbol has a, you know, a meaning, but yet it, it has a, you know, it ties into a different symbol and a different meaning. And, it, you know, so often that when things are done in threes, it's to bring importance to or to bring, you know, our awareness to things. You know, so John is is hearing things and seeing things and he's having this prophetic vision you know, in the, his older, you know, years as he's on the island of Patmos and he's giving the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, and, you know, there's so much going on, but yet it's all about, you know, his sacrificial love for us. You know, the churches, you know, go sideways. You know, we go sideways at times, but yet it's his mercy that brings us back. You know, and that... You know, although there is punishment, although there is wrath, how often is that not the thing that really turns us? You know, it's when we, we run into the love and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus that really begins to, to melt our hearts and renew our minds as we begin to see that there's a, a whole different way. You know, so many people think that, you know, this is all about religion and rules. 
you know, and if I don't behave, then I'm going to be punished. You know, that I get to have a relationship with Jesus. I get to obey him today. Where the majority of my life, I was just rebelling because that's who I was. You know, I, I didn't need more rules. I needed a loving Savior to come into my life and begin to melt my heart and show me that there was a completely different way to live. You know, and as each and every one of us has, you know, we're learning to have this relationship with this person that loves us no matter what. You know, and that's difficult for most of us. You know, we don't know how to to have context in that because that word love for us always came with, you know, repercussions. It always came with this difficulty in relationships. You know, many of the people that said they love us have hurt us the most. You know, and yet, Here's Jesus that says he loves us so much that he laid his life down for us. And, you know, it's hard for us to really wrap our mind around that. But as we really get into the word and we really begin to to study this stuff and we really begin to pray and we really begin to see what it's truly all about, it's not about the rules. It's not about the stuff I can't do anymore. Because as I pursue Jesus, there's all this stuff I don't want to do anymore. It's not that I can't. I just choose that I don't want to. You know, why? Because he's giving me a satisfaction in my heart that could never be there by any other means than a relationship through him. You know, so even though many of us have faced consequences to our actions, you know, we kept on doing a lot of those things, didn't we? You know, and it's the love of Jesus that started to come into our lives that began to help us to see that there's a whole different way to live. You know, and I pray that this next year as it's coming up real fast, you know, that we continue to grow in the understanding of his love, that we continue to, to chase after him. We continue to follow in his footsteps. We begin to obey his word more and more, that we, you know, avoid his consequences because we truly are in love with him and trying to follow him to the best of our ability. You know, and, you know, I believe that there's times that consequences are important, you know, but I also believe that grace has such a power that it can't be replaced by any other means. Can you just bow your heads with me? Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for all that you're doing. I just ask that you just move in each and every one of our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd open up our minds to understanding your word. I pray that you would speak to us about this season, that you'd show us the true meaning of Christmas, whether it's just loving someone or stepping outside of ourselves or serving in some way, shape, or form, or just loving someone that's, you know, going through a hard time. Lord, help us to represent you well. Help us to stand up and be a light into other people's darkness. Help us to show mercy and love to those that are around us because you showed it to us. We just thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray.